National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. And interestingly enough, today, we're bringing in somebody from around the world. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. We normally invite guests to join us who are here in Minnesota, sometimes from around the nation, but today we have somebody very special joining us, all the way from Helsinki, Finland. Uh, Charlie Salonius Pasternak earned his B.A. from Wesleyan University here in the United States and a Master of Social Sciences from the University of Helsinki in Finland. Charlie currently serves as the lead researcher heading up the Center on U.S. Power and Politics at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Charlie is also a senior research fellow at the Institute's Global Security Program. His research and writing focuses on international security issues, with a regional focus on Nordic and transatlantic security, including NATO, uh, as well as U.S. foreign and defense policy. In 2017, he was visiting research fellow at the Changing Character of War program at Pembroke College at Oxford University, where he studied the hybridization of warfare and the impact of the information age on the character of warfare. Charlie has also served as an advisor at Finnish Defense Command. Charlie frequently lectures at universities in Finland, at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and in the United States. Charlie Salonis Pasternak publishes in English, Swedish, and Finnish, and has appeared on CNN and news channels around the world. Charlie is also a reserve senior lieutenant in the Finnish Defense Forces, and in 2020 was made a Knight of the Order of the White Rose of Finland, which is a distinguished military award. Charlie Salonis Pasternak, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, and thank you for that overflowing introduction. It's uh, great to be here talking with you. I know. So you're in Helsinki. Uh, it's uh, 6 p.m. your time out in Helsinki. I'm sure you've had a busy work day today. It's, uh, it's, it's been a good day. I've been mainly working on a paper actually for the U.S. National Defense University on uh, lessons uh, regarding COVID-19 pandemic, um, especially vis-a-vis kind of military, civil military relations and things like that. So um, uh, this is a very welcome break to uh, chat more broadly with you. All right. Uh, So for everybody, uh, Charlie has agreed to help us understand three things today. Finnish defense policy, Nordic defense policy and cooperation, and European Union and NATO defense policy and coordination. Uh, Charlie, let's start our discussion today centered on Finland and the Finnish defense forces. Can Can you give us a rundown of Finland's defense? How's it set up? How do the Army, Navy, and Air Force, you know, what, what do they look like? Well, fundamentally, Finland's defense is uh, based on national service. So men have to serve, uh, and a great majority do. Uh, this is to enable a large field army, which is fully mobilized, would be about 280,000, with another two 300,000 in replacement reserves. So we expect to take casualties. And why is that? Because everything is basically focused against one threat, which is our dear neighbor to the east, that is Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, Finland, Finland then uh, sends soldiers to international operations. Um, we'll talk about that later. Um, but that's the kind of the ground basement, as it were. Then built on that, um, talked a little bit about the Army. The Air Force um, is not huge compared to the U.S., but it still runs about 60 
um, F-18s bought from the U.S. and mid-90s, upgraded since. And perhaps the crown jewel there is that Finland was sold only as the second country after the U.S. So Finland, Australia, the U.S. Air Force's premier air-to-ground weapon system, JASM. And uh, let's see, by the end of the year, we should find out what the next new fighters we've picked are. The Navy, entirely a what one might call a green water Navy, um, but focused uh, and built for one thing, which is defense of Finland from a naval perspective, uh, with increasing capabilities to do some kind of um, escort duties, things like that. But strong mind laying and strong mind. Um, and there, too, we're looking forward to a new class of ships, which for political reasons in Finland, they're called corvettes, but really have the firepower of a normal frigate. Okay. So that's the general lay of the land. And, of course, then there are then cyber operations and other such things. So a little bit more on uh, on the Army, Air Force, and uh, and Navy, if we could. Uh, the, the sort of the active component of the Army uh, in Finland. How, how many how many soldiers is that? So if you take the cadre, it's about seven thousand officers and and NCOs, and their peacetime main task is to train the about twenty thousand conscripts, so that you eventually can can continue to kind of replenish and replace the reserve. Um, what their kind of secondary task used to be, but now has become maybe primary task, is also readiness. So um, probably about seven, eight years ago, uh, if the Finnish government needed a trained army land forces units, it would have taken a while, uh, as, as you well know, to set it up. Now it's a about well let's say it's a few hours uh, right. until <laughs> units trained together with organic artillery isr logistics artillery everything roll out the gates so the kind of the focus of the cadre again which is about seven thousand um has focused from exclusively training conscripts into reservists to now also being responsible for readiness. Uh, and the reason for this is obviously um, to try to prevent situations like we saw in 2014 in Ukraine and mm -hmm. green little men. Right. Sort of a wake-up call for everybody in uh, in Europe, I think. So, And on the Air Force side, uh, uh, roughly 60 uh, F-18s, um, how often are they responding to uh, Russian uh, aviation incursions into Finnish airspace these days? Well, uh, there was a, certainly an increase in volume in, let's say, 2015, 16, 17. It's now leveled off, but at a higher level. Um, any, um, should I say, there's a policy that airspace violations are made public, mm -hmm. um, independent of who does it, sometimes, rarely. It's a Swedish helicopter or, or, or some other country. Um, but uh, the Finnish Air Force certainly goes up far more often to take a look at who's flying because one of the issues, just a civil or normal aviation security issue, is um, that Russian forces fly dark far more often than anyone else. 
Um, so not only do they not have transponders, but they haven't told anyone when they're flying or where they're flying. And this is obviously just a general security issue. Um, so the Finnish Air Force goes up quite often. They tend not to make a big number out of it. Uh, occasionally, they'll take a picture simply to show that we got this picture even in the dead of night mm-hmm. uh, or or something else just to make a point. Um, it's not a daily occurrence, but uh, they do take off quite frequently. Okay. And on the Navy side, uh, I, I know there are off the coast of Finland, there are lots and lots and lots of islands. Uh, so it's sort of a uh, an environment conducive to smaller ships, like you talked about, uh, corvette size uh, vessels, uh, but also the the sort of the missile boats uh, that are out there uh, yep. very fast. Uh, a- anything else you want to talk about with regards to the Navy? Uh? Well, I, I I guess I, Rob. It used to be kind of a thought of as the uh, stepchild, as it were, because (laughs) its main task was to try to prevent an invasion. Now, no one's expecting an invasion um, kind of from the archipelago because it is um, very, very conducive territory for a defender. Sure. Um, So currently, I guess you could say the Navy's role, yes, they can do some of that. Um, but they can also, how should we say, um, limit others' motion quite effectively. So um, the one of the bigger Russian Navy bases uh, is in the Bay of Finland by, by St. Petersburg. Uh, so it wouldn't actually be altogether difficult for the Finnish Navy to close them out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so restrict others' movements, see lanes of communication. Uh, but uh, then, of course, also try to protect in a crisis situation or war any shipments into Finland. Because while Finland's not literally an island, from a defensive purpose point of view, it often is termed as such. Um, and 80, let's say 80% of trade is seaborne. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a critical need for the Finnish Navy also nowadays to be able to protect um, Finnish shipping. Sure. Uh, and therefore just kind of society as, as a whole. Now, the, you mentioned the small ships, just to give the listeners an idea, probably referring to the Hamina class, yep. which uh, I think you, you, you might have been in. Um, they are about 55 meters long, uh, but they run at about two meters deep. Right. That is, you could take them to most, most beaches uh, very, very close. Um, very fast, reasonably armed. The new class uh, will have a deeper draft, um, but... Uh, will uh, be using, among other weapon systems, um, the U.S. advanced Sea Sparrow. So mm. have a fairly, fairly hefty air defense capability. And this is, of course, nice. I mean, in a crisis, you can park one of these outside of Helsinki and kind of dare the adversary to do something. Are you actually going to sink a large ship? Sure. Uh, so uh, there are kind of many ways before an all-out war that the Navy's capabilities can can be used to deter or at least point out to the adversary that, hey, do you really, really want to do this? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so let's continue on a little bit on that Navy piece. Uh, Finland <sighs> is a partner for peace in the NATO construct, and, and Finland has deployed forces uh, to Afghanistan, amongst other places, uh, Finland has also deployed the Finnish Navy flagship Poyanma 
to the Horn of Africa for counter-piracy operations. Now, what, what can you tell us about Finland's commitment to these international operations and, and perhaps uh, some of the other locations uh, that the Finnish Defense Forces have deployed to as well? What has Finland gained from participating in these operations? Quite a lot. Um, it's the before before answering greater detail, I just point out that it's part of kind of Finnish foreign security policy, a, a core part of it since the mid fifties when Finland participated in the first UN peacekeeping uh, mission, nineteen fifty six. Um, unfortunately, in a region that we are seeing again embroiled in flames in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's part of kind of Finnish makeup, the idea being that as a small country, Finland has an interest in trying to uh, kind of address conflicts, mitigate them, um, you know, get to peace, as it were, Uh, with a not frequently mentioned kind of side thought that if Finland ever would want others to come to Finland's aid, Finland has to show that it also is willing to share the burden. Uh, of, of international peace, as it were, uh, or trying to maintain peace or ensure peace. And now in terms of operations, you mentioned NATO, yes, uh, Balkans wars in the early 90s resulted in Finland for the first time ever um, joining a NATO operation, mm-hmm. um, including Kosovo in 99, and from there, it was actually a short step. It's it's easy maybe to forget. Um, in 2001, early 2002, uh, joining then others in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. The Brits effectively said, hey, um, Finns, you do this civil-military cooperation stuff really well in the Balkans and Kosovo. Would you like to do it in Kabul? The Finns said, sure. Uh, now, obviously, um, the nature of the Afghanistan enterprise and operation changed, um, but... The Finns thought, we need to stick this out. One, because we came here in support of the U.S. We believe in actually trying to help Afghans. Um, and not as frequently mentioned, um, there's a benefit to Finnish security forces, primarily the military, in actually being able to measure themselves against other international forces, uh, there's kind of a frequent skepticism that, you know, how, are, how is this bunch of kind of reservists going to measure up to uh, countries that have all volunteer professional forces? And usually I would say pretty damn well. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, and then just to test things out. Of course, that's not really a great thing in a democracy to say, hey, we want to uh, participate in a war just to test out things out. But it's certainly a side benefit for the Finnish defense forces, how to do air to ground operations, how to operate in a multinational environment and, and things like that. So there's a whole range of reasons from the very practical uh, up to kind of um, someone some may even see, say, uh, you know, kind of uh, naive thoughts about contributing to, to global peace. Yeah, and the Poyan uh, deployment actually happened uh, when I was U.S. Naval Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, and I can remember thinking to myself that this uh, extraordinary deployment that the Finnish Navy was making was going to be a tremendous learning experience, uh, just just even in the supply chain side of how do you keep a, a ship deployed halfway around the world in, in 
very hot conditions compared to what Finland has, uh, even in the hottest days of summers up up in Finland. So, it it it, it certainly wasn't. You mentioned the hot conditions. Um, a perhaps a funny detail that most Finnish navy ships are actually camouflage colored, painted right. in camouflage, uh, <laughs> because they're meant to operate in the archipelago. And it might sound funny, but in fact, uh, this Humana class ship, uh, 55 meters, it's actually really difficult to see, even mm-hmm. in broad day- daylight, if it's any further than five, 600 meters from you in the archipelago. Mm-hmm. Really difficult yeah. um, to visually identify. Uh, so the Pohema was also painted dark before, uh, but they they tested things out. They repainted in the usual light shade that you see U.S. and other Navy ships because it decreased the internal temperature by some 20 degrees. Right. <laughs> so lots of learning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Charlie Salinas Pasternak, a defense policy and strategy expert at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. So, Charlie, let's shift our focus, our discussion now to, to Nordic cooperation. Uh, who are the member nations that comprise Nordic countries? Well, generally, you'd say there are five. So Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, with Iceland not having its own uh, military um, but, of course, also a member of NATO. Uh, and uh, that's one of the key distinctions here is Iceland, Norway, Denmark are members of NATO. And Finland and Sweden do a lot of cooperation and are probably more interoperable than some NATO members, but are not NATO members themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's a strong cooperation amongst the Nordic countries themselves. Uh, what can you tell us about that cooperation between the Nordic partner countries regarding defense policy, procurement, combined training, and maybe preparedness as well? Well, during the Cold War, of course, there could be very little official cooperation. Inofficially, the chiefs of defense um, might have met in various hunting lodges in northern Lapland and so on. But this is all just to say that kind of the restart of Nordic cooperation um, with regards to actual national defense occurred about a decade ago. Before that, the cooperation had usually been hidden or then been largely focused on international operations. Finland having worked with both Norway and Sweden in Afghanistan, for instance. Um, so it's it's termed Nordefco, Nordic Defense Cooperation. And one of the keys being that it's small countries is not to kind of rebuild lots of staffs or things. It's very ad hoc. So two, three countries can decide, hey, we uh, we need to look into this little piece of logistics to make it easier for us to cooperate. Or, or maybe four of the countries decide, uh, should we do a study on mines or whatever it is. Um, but the key is that it's very kind of ad hoc. Now, the goals that are set for the next half decade would make it quite easy for all of the countries to cooperate operationally in a war. Now, it doesn't guarantee cooperation, um, but it turns out over the years there's been lots of legislation which makes it difficult for Finnish soldiers to, even for exercises, take live ammunition into Norway and all sorts of little things. (laughs) And once all of this is wiped out, um, it just requires a political decision. And, you know, the next day, the troops are rolling over or sailing over or flying over. Uh, So this has really been the revelation in many ways. Um, 
in terms of Nordic cooperation. And uh, certainly the fact that not everyone's a NATO member hinders some things. But I'm under the impression that, in fact, sometimes it might actually even make things easier. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, um, you're kind of forced to look at things from different perspectives. So so on that Nordic cooperation piece, uh, obviously the Nordic partners uh, have a deep and abiding interest in what happens in the Arctic. <laughs> uh, yes. Where does Finland stand on, on Arctic policy issues? Well, Finland's an Arctic country as long as you look at Arctic as the Arctic Circle. A third of the country is above the Arctic Circle and part of the Arctic Council and all that. Uh, but since World War II and having to give up a fair amount of land to the Soviet Union, Finland no longer has an Arctic port. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to have one. In, um, but uh, it's um, fundamentally Finland's thing is international cooperation is good. And you should try to do it um, even with potential adversaries simply because that will increase kind of trust and an understanding of each other, et cetera. Um, Now, there's also a sense that the Arctic kind of is a global matter to some degree, but that it is countries that are genuinely Arctic who should be deciding. Um, This is why Finland welcomes for instance, countries like China to be observers, um, but certainly wouldn't want China to begin deciding how and what is done in the Arctic, mm-hmm. um, whether or not it's regarding kind of matters to do with climate, indigenous populations, or the, the increasing militarization of the region. Now, of course, some might have heard a lot of talk about this, of you know the Arctic's being militarized, but that ignores the fact that, of course, it was already during the Cold War. There was just this short, maybe decade interlude when people just didn't care or focus about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but fundamentally, Finland wants to be at the table because clearly Arctic things matter in terms of, again, climate, security, very centrally to Finland. Yeah. I, I know when I was there that uh, one of the unique capabilities that uh, Finland has uh, that should be maybe advertise a little bit more is uh, in the Baltic, which freezes over every winter, at least significant portions of it do, uh, Finland has the capability to recover oil spills in ice flows. Uh, And one of the things that I think the world will be challenged by with climate change happening is a stronger desire to explore for oil and gas in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, So that's going to greatly increase the chances of major oil spills happening in the Arctic Ocean and and impacting all kinds of marine life up there. So Finland's capability to recover that oil is one of those things where Finland becomes an expert in that particular uh, recovery effort should it ever happen in the Arctic Arctic Ocean itself. it's, it's, it's It's an interesting capability and also interesting is how it kind of is organized um, and funded. So the, the the ship, the primary ship to do this is operated by the Finnish Navy, but it's actually funded by the environmental kind of authority, as it were, and a few others, um, because all of the authorities realize together that we should probably have this capability. Um, a large chunk of Russian oil exports come 
uh, daily right through and past Finland or the southern coast of Finland. Um, but the fact that the authorities, rather than competing and everyone wanting to get its own ship, just said, why don't we collect our limited funds and then just decide who's going to operate this? And it made sense for the Finnish Navy for a host of reasons to yeah. operate this, because as many things in the Finnish security environment, um, almost nothing has only one role. Uh, this ship um, can do many other things also. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Charlie Salonius Pasternak, a defense policy and strategy expert at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, so, Charlie, let's let's shift to uh, the European Union now. Uh, regarding EU defense policy, what, what are the security challenges that, that most concern the EU today? Well, I think if you'd asked most EU citizens, uh, you'd probably find Corona um, fairly high at the top. Um, if you go further out uh, south, uh, you might get uh, migration. Um, it doesn't make the news so often, but um, if not daily, there are weekly uh, reports of um, refugees, dingy boats collapsing somewhere in the Med. Um, and of course, some EU member states are feeling great pressure. Uh, in terms of refugee camps, um, it's one. Uh, others, if you go east, can, can, can I can I follow here. up? Can I follow up on that topic very quickly sure. on the immigration piece? What What do you think is driving all that immigration into Europe from uh, the Middle East and, and North Africa? Well, there are easy populist answers, and then there's probably answers which get at least closer to um, the truth, as it were. Um, but um, it's undeniable that kind of um, the societal upheavals you see in Africa, uh, Northern Africa, but also Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in the Middle East, and the increasing population pressures, um, fewer chances to uh, make a living, even a starvation living, uh, just have caused people to start moving. Um, certainly, if you look at the numbers where refugees come from, um, war in Syria, um, it's a big role, uh, but also some of the. Now, I want to emphasize that, of course, neighboring countries like Jordan uh, or Turkey even have borne the brunt of this. Mm -hmm. Then, from Africa, um, what used to be a uh, kind of a line of, I'll call them strongmen, but definitely not democracies, right. um, but well organized, used to be able to just kind of prevent all of this from happening. But of course, with um, the civil war ongoing in Libya, kind of large openings have occurred for, I'll call them crime organizations uh, that help in, in smuggling people over. Mm -hmm. So it's it's this kind of super complex um, kind of totality that has to do with local uh, living experiences and, and ability to live a life wherever one is from, whereas Nigeria, Horn of Africa, um, to then conflicts driving this migration. And um, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's it's going to stop. So that's one. We, of course, see left, less of it in Finland. Uh, but here, and uh, in kind of Eastern European countries, um, Russia, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, would cause a concern. Uh, overall, if you take a global perspective, 
a clear majority of Finns, but Europeans also see climate change uh, as being a grave security threat. Um, the list probably includes things also that have to do with technology, use of technology. But um, if I had to pick one, globally speaking, climate change, and then uh, depending on where in Europe you live, um, uh, Russia, refugees, instability emanating from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you mentioned Russia. Uh, Finland has a, a very effective border security force, which is pretty important when you share an 850-mile-long border with Russia. Uh, how does Finland contribute to the European Union's border security efforts? Well, in in two ways. Um, one, by being, as you mentioned, a, a border country. Uh, if you look at a global map of kind of the difference where the difference between two sides of the border in terms of many measures of quality of life or or democracy and so on the uh, the the border between finland and russia um usually shows up in quite different colors as it were it's kind of the outer guard for the eu a schengen border um that's certainly one finland would probably do that anyway even if it was an EU member, or it would. Uh, then other ways are to contribute equipment, um, kind of maritime surveillance planes or capabilities to operations in the Middle East, um, or then expertise um, in kind of uh, kind of meeting, addressing the the flow of refugees from Middle East, Turkey, into Greece, or so on. But that tends to be individuals, or you know, half a dozen people, dozen people. Um, the main effort, I would say, um, is along the Finnish border, although I would say that even if Finland's contributions to these efforts are numerically quite small, um, that's part of the point of belonging to a large group. Everyone can contribute a little bit, and the totality is quite significant. And maybe even more important than that is the show of solidarity that Finland shows that, hey, Greece, southern EU member states... We might not feel this pressure as much, but we're willing to help you out. Note, goes unsaid, if we ever need help, hopefully you guys can help us. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's pivot a little bit uh, to Finland's role uh, vis-a-vis NATO. We've talked a little bit about, about Finland being a partner for peace, but not an actual NATO signatory, and yet... Finland and even Sweden are pretty interoperable in the military construct uh, of NATO. So why hasn't Finland chosen to officially join the NATO alliance? It's funny, I get get asked that question a lot, whether or not I'm I'm (laughs) giving talks um, abroad or if there's a a group of NATO colonels coming here. Um, Usually they've been briefed on on the answer, but um, it's very complex and, say, about two-thirds of Finns, uh, year in, year out, uh, think that Finland should not seek NATO membership. Mm-hmm. At the same time, about 60% of Finns think that cooperation or deeper cooperation with NATO is a good thing. <laughs> uh, so one might say, go figure. Um, the answer lies, as many things, in history. So during the Cold War, for various reasons, um, your average Finn would hear a lot of kind of thinking that went about like this. Finnish history is full of regional or superpowers drawing 
Finland into conflict, whether or not Sweden in the 15, 16, 1700s, um, when Finland was a part of Sweden, uh, or then Russia attacking. Uh, so let's try to stay out of great power um, uh, competitions as were. Well, why is this relevant? Well, because NATO and the Warsaw Treaty Organization were in Finland frequently presented as kind of uh, I hesitate to say imperialist tools, but kind of at least controlled by the U.S. <laughs> and the Soviet Union. And in case of course, a treaty organization, that assessment was probably very correct. Um, so there's a sense of we don't want to be involved in NATO because we'll just be dragged into wars by others. Um, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to fight. If we have to, we'll defend ourselves, but we're not interested in fighting war wars across across the planet. Um, this is probably not a fair assessment, but this is how many Finns would have grown up hearing and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, right now, the sense is Russia has made it clear that Finland or Sweden joining NATO is a deep, deep red line. And at the same time, deepening cooperation makes sure that we could fight together. Now, it doesn't mean there's going to be fighting together right. um, or, or cooperation between Finland, Sweden, and NATO, but at least it would be possible. In Sweden, the situation is a little different. There, in fact, there's been a radical change, and now the people supporting NATO membership and arguing against it is about equal at, let's say, 35-40%. Um, and so uh, let's see what happens with Sweden. In Finland, the thinking is if Sweden joins, Finland has to join ah. um, and not be left by itself. Um, but equivalently, most Finns think that if Finland joins, then Sweden's never going to join because, <laughs> hey, it's going to be surrounded by NATO countries. <laughs> yeah. So why do it? Right, right. Yeah. So so you mentioned Russia uh, and we talked a little bit about uh, things changing back in, in 2014 and even before that. Uh, so what, what impacted Russian actions in Georgia and then Crimea and, and eastern Ukraine, uh, what did that have? What impact did that have on Finnish defense strategy? Um, I would say on Finland's approach to defense, very little in terms of again Finland being the, one of the few European countries to kind of keep national conscription and and a uh, focus on territorial defense. Um, but it certainly. Um, the increased Russian capabilities of shifting tens of thousands of soldiers literally overnight mm -hmm. at great distances certainly made the Finnish defense establishment realize that there was a lot of work to be done in how quickly we could get out of the blocks or out of the barracks, as it were. Mm -hmm. What it also kind of how it impacted was all of a sudden, lots of people became interested in Finland. I cannot tell you the number of just senior U.S. officials from basically every multilateral, multi-letter agency you can think of, as well as the different um, <laughs> um, branches that visited Finland between 2015 and 2019. Um, so lots of people realized, hey, we should probably be better aware of what it is that Russia can do, what it generally does, etc. And Finland, because it had kept this focus was evil. So that's maybe the other change um, that people now take Finland's position as being quite reasonable, as opposed to maybe 
I don't know, I'll say 15 years ago, a lot of people in Helsinki who would just arrive would say, why, why do you keep on doing this thing? That Don't you realize that the real conflicts are out there, you know, kind of expeditionary warfare and, in, in, you know, in tens of thousands of miles from here. And Finns would say, yeah, we're not sure um, that Russia tends <laughs> to have a historic kind of up and down swings and, and we're a small country, so we still have to fundamentally prepare. But certainly 2014 was a wake-up call in how much work there was to do to ensure Finland could act quickly enough. Yeah, and I'll highlight for our uh, for our listeners here um, something that I have always found absolutely fascinating when you consider that uh, uh, Finland has a, a robust uh, military uh, with the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. You have your own border guard. Uh, you have a foreign service. Uh, you have your own parliament, uh, the whole deal. Uh, all of the national uh, services that are provided to people across the country. And your population as a nation is almost exactly the same as the state of Minnesota, <laughs> about five and a half million people in both Finland and, and then here in Minnesota. So it, it amazes me to think about all of the things that Finland accomplishes uh, with a population that is almost exactly the same size as, as my home state here in, in Minnesota. Uh, so, Charlie, we just have a few minutes left. Well, if, if I can say, I have to... Sure. I have to think that if the Minnesotans were required to kind of uh, do the same in Canada somehow was the uh, historical adversary. Um, <laughs> in li- hockey, li- they living, are. <laughs> uh, living in, uh, at least in hockey, right? Yep. Um, living in, in harsh climates and, and being small sometimes requires you to kind of learn to do things efficiently and to, as I said, cooperate in a way that if you have almost unlimited resources – you don't really have to cooperate. Everyone can kind of do their own thing, which means you have kind of 10 things doing the same thing. Um, sure. <laughs> not something that a small country can afford. Yeah. Um, but, so, but ultimately, I mean, um, uh, I guess uh, advertisement for anyone thinking of, of at least visiting Finland, uh, fourth year in a row marked or kind of studied as the happiest country in the world. So right. we must be doing something <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Charlie, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, what else do you think the American listeners should know about Finland's defense policy or perhaps Nordic or EU defense policy, maybe even Finland's perspective on, on NATO writ large, uh, maybe something we haven't covered in our discussion today? Well, I, th- I think um, one of the things to appreciate is that um, quite often, at least in the last few years in, in Washington, there's been a sense of kind of what are all these allies where the U.S. is paying for for their defense? Yes, there's a very, very good argument that some countries, Germany, for instance, uh, should pay more for its defense. Um, but left out of the discussion is often what the U.S. gets out of it. Um, and not only mine, but but a quite you know common view is that the U.S. can position as a as the global superpower. And the U.S. global power kind of practice, it's based on this network of allies and partners that may not always agree with a particular policy, but on the whole, think working with the U.S. is a good thing. So the U.S. gains a tremendous amount of having and, you know, keeping up this network, Uh, whether or not it's the... Um, you know, U.S. Army soldier that that uh, could be flown from Iraq to Germany um, to get specialist surgery uh, or 
how kind of U.S. drones are effectively run um, in the Middle East. It's a whole load of kind of small tactical things. But then there's the much larger question uh, of how the U.S. benefits for this. And if you look at the U.S. national security strategy, which names China as kind of the adversary, um, that's one of the things that differentiates the U.S. from China and many others is there is this network of countries that really do want to work with the U.S. Um, and are ready to put kind of themselves on the line or their soldiers on the line for some greater goods. And this is a quite an intangible thing. You can't really put a value on it, but I'm fairly certain that if the U.S. did not have this network, um, the U.S. could not maintain its its kind of superpower status. So yeah. I guess some something to think about. So, so I would suggest, uh, you know, if, if people want to learn more uh, from military history uh, to understand this current state of affairs, all they need to do is study the Peloponnesian War and the struggle between Athens and Sparta and all the alliances and networks that, uh, that those two uh, city-states had, very powerful nation, you know, city-states, uh, and the reliance they had on their, on their allies. And when they lost their allies, that's when things went wrong. Uh, so, Charlie, what are you working on right now for your research? Well, right now, as I said, I'm finishing this paper looking at impacts of Krona. Uh, I've written similar ones to for French and German German consumption, um, looking at how Finnish parliamentarians uh, view foreign security policy. But then I'm also looking at deterrence, how small countries um, can build deterrence. I'll, I'll give maybe a concrete example if it if it sounds a little too uh, uh, high flying. So <laughs> Finland has this ability to um, strike deep into Russia now. Um, but unlike the view you want, might get from a Hollywood movie, um, you can't just go firing away and destroying everything. Because <laughs> yeah. let's say Finland would do this. All of a sudden, Finland, a small country, has now struck at Russia's strategic, that is, nuclear kind of systems. That doesn't end well, no. <laughs> ever, I think. Um, and so I'm looking at kind of how do you build deterrence in a modern world, um, which might be effective, but, um, and includes not just kind of physical, but electronic information, other, other aspects, um, societal resilience, making it clear that you can come here, but you will never get what you're seeking. Um, how do you build this in a modern world um, when, when you have... Um, uh, a small country next to a large um, kind of nuclear-armed petro-state um, uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, so that's that's maybe the big questions I'm trying to answer at the moment. Yep. So unfortunately, Charlie, we've, we, we've come to the end of our show for today. Uh, Charlie Salonis-Pasternak, thank you so much for joining us on uh, today on uh, National Security This Week. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Uh, I know you're at the very end of your workday, uh, pushing into uh, probably about six six forty p.m. Maybe you should go grab some dinner and uh, spend a little time with uh, with your kids if you have them right now. So, anyway, that's for, for folks, that, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM ten eighty and FM ninety five point one. I'm your host John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at nine a.m. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. 
Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.